Christianity is power. Power is not Christianity, but Christianity is power. And Paul is emphatic about that in Romans, in Romans chapter 5 specifically. Christianity is the power to struggle, the power to suffer, the power to repent, the power to endure, the power to remain, the power to hope. Christianity is unlike any other thing in the world because it sets your eyes not on this life, but on the next, and not on the next as something you must earn with this life. All other religions that talk about the next world make it based on this world. Christianity says this world is lost. This world is fallen. This world is decaying. This world is dead. This world is as good as gone, but he is risen. Alleluia. And that truth is the power of the Holy Spirit. Another person of the Trinity, the actual true and only God who inhabits you by that truth. He doesn't come in to you to make it so that all your problems go away. He doesn't come in to you to make it so that you never sin again. He doesn't come in to you to make it so that you never feel a whit of shame. He comes into you so that when all of those other things happen, you remember that you are not your own. But you've been bought with a price, purchased like a slave on the stock market, but to take you out of slavery and the stocks and to put you instead into a world of everlasting goodness. Now, Paul has been proving this point from the Old Testament in chapter 4 that we looked at last week especially focusing on the faith of Abraham and the faith of David as two men of old who left a testimony of their trust in God because God said so. God came and made them promises that went against reason, against nature, against what seems obvious, and they believe those promises. Those promises in chapter 4 are twofold. One to Abraham, from you will come a son by whom the entire world will be blessed. Since the guy is like 100 years old and his wife's like 90, it's an impossible promise. But Abraham trusts God. And that trust alone is the righteousness of God at work in him. That is the Holy Spirit inhabiting him. That is his first resurrection from the dead. David has a similar kind of situation. His issue is that he has committed murder in order to hide his fornication, and he's being confronted with it by God, and he says, God, have mercy, and God says, I will. Just as impossible as a 90-year-old woman giving birth to a child is a just God having mercy on an ungodly sinner. Yet blessed is the man to whom God does not count his iniquities, whose sins are forgiven. This is the gospel, the good news, the proclamation from a just God that he wants to not only be just, but also be the justifier of the ungodly, the one who takes the ungodly and makes him godly, the one who takes the sinner and makes him righteous. And he does this not by saying, here's a bar, see if you can hop over it. He just says, you're righteous, and you are. 
And again, the experience of this in Christianity is not that you go out with great power to achieve all things, but that you simply believe that you've been called righteous by God. Even when you see how unrighteous you are. This is where he's picking up now in chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, Therefore, since we have been justified. That means since God has said to us, we are righteous. Now, I'd love you to follow on along. We're going to go verse by verse, page 942 in your pew Bible. You can find Romans chapter 5. If you're not already bringing your own Bible to church, which I encourage you to start doing as soon as humanly possible. And another sales pitch this week. If you haven't noticed, there are blank three by five cards in the pew and some pretty decent gel pens, which you could steal. We'll just have to buy more. You can also leave them there for next week, but they're, they're good pens. I encourage you to take one of those cards and a pen out this week. And while you're following along in your Bible, just write down anything that comes to mind. Maybe it's a grocery list. Maybe it's what you're going to do this afternoon. Maybe it's just one thing I say or the text says that's worth remembering. And I'm going to promise you this that the experience you have at church of feeling like you know what you believe or why you believe it will be exponentially increased by you taking the time to write something down. Even if it's beside some doodles in the grocery list. I really mean it. That's not a problem. Write it down. Don't forget. That's the value of paper. But if you're going to write down a grocery list so you remember it, why would you not write down the most empowering insight that you heard in a 45-minute sermon? So I encourage you to make use of those. They're there for you for that reason. Okay, so we're going to go straight through the text of chapter 5 today, starting at verse 1 on page 942 of the Pew Bible, where it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, I just said justified means declared innocent by God. This is courtroom terminology. Most of us don't spend a lot of time in courtrooms. Thank God. Yes, uh, but as a result, maybe we're not as familiar with the kind of language that a courtroom uses. So if I talk about the plaintiff, you might remember that from school. But I guess if some of the kids are like, what's the plaintiff? Right? The plaintiff is the one who brings the accusation. They're the reason you're in court. There's a problem. They got to challenge something. And they bring it against, the plaintiff brings the accusation against the defendant. And the defendant's job is to defend himself, although usually he'll get a lawyer. And the lawyer will get up and the lawyer for the plaintiff will say, well, they did this. And the lawyer will say, well, there were these other reasons. And then there was this place. And here's the alibi. Well, there's a big word. Yeah. Alibi means your story about where you were. This is all taking place in front of a judge. The judge's job is to make sure nobody lies. Nobody cheats in the argument. And in some cases, the judge is also the one who will render the judgment. Yeah, he will decide who's right and who's wrong, whether the plaintiff is right in the accusation or whether the defendant is in fact innocent that is justified okay now in our courtrooms a lot of times because of the constitution thanks be to god you are free to be judged by a, a jury of your peers right this is where other people who are maybe not elites get to come in and listen to what the judge and the lawyers say and they get to render the verdict that's fine it's great that's politics let's just leave that aside for half a second though so in the bible there's no juries there's no jury. There's the judge. There's the judge. There's the plaintiff. There's the defendant. Okay. And 
in the Bible then, the plaintiff, the one who is accusing, is the accuser. The word Satan means accuser. He is the one bringing the charge against you, just like he does in the book of Job. Look at that guy. He only believes for selfish reasons. Yeah, that's the accuser, the plaintiff. In the Bible, Satan is the accuser. In the Bible, you are the defendant. You are the one being accused. And here's the crazy thing. Satan's right. He's right. You are justly accused. But now here's where it all gets kind of topsy-turvy. Not only is Jesus your lawyer, he's also the judge. You might call that unfair, but the thing is, he bought that right. And so as you're being accused by this wicked, demonic lawyer and having no thing you can bring to the fore to show that you deserve to be declared innocent, Jesus steps in the middle and says, I have a reason. It's right here. He's engraven in my hands. And so therefore, I declare him innocent. And here's where, again, you are now. No matter what it feels like, no matter what it looks like, you don't have to do anything more. You don't have to appropriate it by something you achieve. It is finished. Since that is true, chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God. Since that is true, we have peace with God. And that peace there not only means an end to the warfare of God against us, although we still endure it in our flesh, we're all going to die someday unless he returns. But the focus of this peace is also the peace of your conscience. It is, you have the power as a Christian to look upon the ruins of the world. Everything can be going as bad as it can possibly be, and you can have peace of conscience simply by remembering that God has said, you belong to him. Nothing can separate you from him. Height, nor depth, angel, nor demon, nothing can possibly separate you from God. And that thought is a peaceful thought. It will always be a peaceful thought. It will never be a chaotic and frustrating thought. You'll be surrounded by chaos and frustration, but the thought that I belong to God, he's going to get me out of this, that's a peaceful thought. Since we have been justified by what Jesus has done, you may own and have that thought inhabit you everlastingly. It is yours. Now, does that mean that you never have to do anything with it? Well, let's change that language. Let me suggest to you that by grabbing that thought, and trying to learn how to discipline yourself to have that thought more often, you will have more peace in your life. If you think a a peaceful thought with regularity, it will have more peace in your life than if you don't. So again, this is the value of writing down one of these good bits of news and looking at it again throughout the week because it counteracts those many other stories from this life, whether they be the story of how you forgot this thing at the store and now you got to go back and, oh my goodness, on and on, or whether it's the stuff about faraway stuff like food shortages and blah, blah, blah. You have the power of knowing you are at peace with God. Non-Christians don't have this. And I, I might contend that some of our weakness as Christians is we've just forgotten that we have this. We have a power no one else has. It is to know that God is for us with certainty because of what Jesus has done. Through him, verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So everything that I was just talking about could be called standing in grace. Standing in grace. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, when you look up to heaven, God has got you standing in a pile of grace. 
but I've got all my failures with me. I have all my shame with me. That's all true, but you're still standing in grace so far as God is concerned. And your access to that knowledge is through faith. That is through believing that God said it's true. And we talked about this last week. You can't make yourself believe that. You can't activate faith in that way. You can't say, well, I'm going to work harder at believing that what God said is true. That won't work. But what will work is having what God said is true be said more often to you. And that will make you believe. Do you remember this from last week? So you can't make yourself trust somebody. If that person's a liar and they lie to you and they lie to you and they lie to you and then they say, I swear it's true, you're going to be like... (laughs) I'd like to believe you, but I can't. On the other hand, if someone always tells you the truth, they have never let you down once before, and then they tell you something that's unbelievable, but I swear it's true. Guess what? You're like, you know what? I don't even want to believe you, but I kind of do. Why? Because faith is based not on you, but on the one that the faith is in. That's how it works. That's how trust works, right? So, Again, you have access by that trust to the God who in fact says these things. And the more that you hear them said, the more trust in it you're going to have. That's life. This grace in which you stand and then we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is to say, we look forward to the day of resurrection. Our trust that God is with us, for us, is moving us toward something far better than this life will ever be, and that is for our bodies to be joined to the body of Christ in his resurrection. I could spend more time on that, but we've already spent enough time on the first two verses, so we're, we're going to push forward here, because that hope of the resurrection now gives you the power, I've already said it, but he says it now, not only to be here, but to rejoice in your suffering. What a ridiculous idea. Try to sell that on TV. Hey, I can teach you how to rejoice in suffering. You want to join me? Who's going to want that? No one's going to want that. And yet it is an incredible power to be able to not need suffering to go away, but instead to stand in the suffering and say, I have a greater comfort even than the alleviation of my pain. I have a comfort of knowing that my Redeemer lives. I have the comfort of knowing that Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And from this, we can see that suffering produces endurance, verse 4, and endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. Now, tracking that there, so suffering produces perseverance and endurance, those are kind of the same idea, that when you face down whatever your shame is, with the knowledge that you now have, that Jesus has got you, and you tell your emotions, you tell your trials, you tell your experiences, Jesus has got me, that is a new character. That is a person who has a character that can endure. That's a gift to you, again, produced not by easiness, but by suffering as a Christian. And that new character that endures, endures not by what it sees, but by hope in what is to come. And so that character who you are becoming, let's call it the new man. The new man who you are being made in Christ is a man not of shame, but of hope. And hope does not put you to shame. Hope is the antidote to shame. And the hope is that no matter what you see, 
no matter what you feel, you're going to lift up your head on that great day and stand in the presence of the living God who is your King, Jesus Christ. You shall not be put to shame by this because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I've already talked about this part this morning. That the Holy Spirit's in you. That God is in you. That he owns you now. That you're his holy temple. Huh? And this is the greatest of good newses. Because again, no matter what else you see out there in this world, you are light and salt in the midst of darkness and decay. The Holy Spirit has chosen you. Now, verses 6 through 11 is just, is just so good. It's repeating the justification story, but it's emphasizing the goodness of God in this. That while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I just want you to focus on we are the ungodly. We are are the ungodly for whom Christ died. We are the impious. We are the lawless. We are the godless. This is inherited by nature. We are born like this, every single human being. Nobody gets out of it. And nonetheless, Christ died for us. This shows you how good God is because we wouldn't do that. Verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You're very unlikely to give up your life for some other good person. You hear a very sad story about some father of seven children who's been a a military veteran. He's retired. He's the best guy in the world, but he's sentenced to go to jail, but you can take his place. I'll pray for him. That's about what we'll get. But maybe, maybe for a good person, one would dare to die, like for your kid. You might die for your kid. But God shows his love, that is his commitment, his self-sacrifice for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't save us even though we deserved it. He didn't save us because we don't. And because he prefers to make good even out of evil. Since therefore, verse 9 We have now been justified by his blood. There's more of that declared innocent talk, yes? Much more shall we be saved by him for the wrath of God. So remember that Romans has started out by saying the wrath of God is being revealed in history. If you look at history, you're not going to see the grace of God. You're going to see the wrath of God. I don't care what news station you're watching right now, you see the wrath of God. Yeah? You look at the ancient history of the world, you see nations rise and fall, and it's evil men doing evil things to more evil men. It's the wrath of God. Yeah? But you have been saved from that. That doesn't mean you'll never be persecuted. That doesn't mean your country is always going to do great. What it means is you have a better city, another kingdom, which is coming. And what he's saying here now is if he's already died for your heart, how much more can you trust him to bring your body to that day of resurrection? Why would you doubt now? And again, I I know why, because we're sinners, and that's what we do. And Romans 7's coming. It's going to talk about that. But the point here, again, you can challenge your own doubt by asking it. Why would you doubt? You have that strength now. You have that word. Own that word. Speak it to yourself. Read it again. Yes? If why, verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? 
So here he shifts it a little bit, but like if, if crucifying the Lord of glory saves you, what do you think his resurrection is going to mean? And like more than that, right? The death is glorious, but the resurrection is more glorious. We just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, but you can believe in it. And again, that's the hope which will comfort you and bring peace to your conscience in the midst of the trials that are definitely going to be here. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Uh, the topic of reconciliation we could spend quite a bit of time on. We're, we're not going to, aside from moving forward, into, I think, I really do think this is about reconciliation. You know, in, in the Corinthian letters, Paul will talk about the, the mending of wounds between people. And that's reconciliation. But here now, he's going to talk about the exchange of one people for another people. Specifically, the exchange of one man for another man. The exchange of Jesus for Adam. And here is where, if you're one of those Christians that doesn't like to believe in the early parts of Genesis as being history, and you say, well, that's the Old Testament, or, well, that's just symbolic because it's Genesis, the problem is Paul doesn't think it's symbolic. Paul now is going to insist that you believe that Adam was a real man. Adam was a real single man who existed before death. And I try to do this swiftly, not waste too much of our time on it. But, but evolution, the theory of evolution, the idea that nothing blew up into something and then ran into itself until it became everything and then it came alive and then it started dying and living and getting stronger until now there's you. That entire theory, especially when it's applied to biology, the, the, the coming about of life, founds itself on an observation called the survival of the fittest, which you can observe. The strong live, the weak die off, the strong pass on their character traits to the weak. This is true. But if you're going to suggest then that that's how man was made, that Adam came about because an ancient ancestor like a monkey died and lived and died and lived and died and lived and died and lived, then death can't come into the world through Adam. And here's the real problem. It's not that we necessarily need death to come into the world through Adam, but when Paul says, just as death came through Adam, life comes from Jesus, and you're like, well, I don't believe in Adam. Oh, why are you believing in Jesus then? You've got to apply it the same way. If Adam is just a symbol, Jesus is just a symbol. And in fact, wouldn't you know how many churches that have adopted this kind of teaching in the last generation get to the point where Jesus is just a symbol. Now, you haven't lived in one of those congregations, most of you, so God bless you, you don't have to know about that, but there's plenty of them. You've got your friends and neighbors out there who, they say, oh, I've got a church, I love God. Uh, Jesus is a good example of hope. And he gives me hope in this life to, to live better because that's what it's about, it's about love. It all sounds nice, doesn't it? But if none of it's real, it's actually idolatry. Now, again, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want you to see how imperative it is that death came from Adam, because that's what Paul's going to say here in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, dash, Eight verses of not the same sentence. So now we have to back up again. We're going to try to hold the idea we're on. Okay. 
We're gonna, I'm going to read verse 12 again, and I'm going to jump to verse 18. That'll complete the sentence. Okay? So here we go. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, let's break that down. Sin came into the world through one man. It's right there in Genesis chapter 3. Adam ate the fruit. It was against God's will. That brought about missing the mark, which is us being not good, and its punishment, death through sin. So death and sin are in the world, and death spreads to all men because all sin. That is, we inherit missing the mark. You want to know how? It's because you're curved in on yourself. You think of yourself as more important than everybody else, and as a result, you blame God for just about everything. And so death reigns and always has reigned. But just as that happened, verse 18, therefore, as that one trespass, that one sin led to condemnation for all, so also one act of righteousness leads to justification for all. Yeah. Just as Adam ate from the tree and it was the ruin of everything, so also Jesus died on the tree and it is the salvation of everything. Reconciliation. The great exchange. Now, the verses between 12 and 18 are also about this, the same idea, but Paul's going to wander a little here, okay? So we're, we're going to walk through them, but just be ready. It's, he kind of he dances and weaves a touch. When we get back down to verse 18, the rest of the chapter is really smooth, just like it has been up to this point, okay? But he, he wanders and weaves a little bit here. He interrupts himself. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Why are you bringing that up, Paul? Well, remember how chapter 1, 2, and 3 have largely been about convincing Jewish Christians that the law is really about faith and not about works. And this is, as the law, we mean the Torah, the revelation of, of the, the will of God to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, and then eventually to Moses. And so it's also about circumcision. And he took a lot of time last week to insist that circumcision came about after Abraham's faith, not before Abraham's faith. And so circumcision does not save you. So now he's kind of speaking to that same audience. And he says that sin is in the world before the law is given. That is, sin existed from Adam all the way down to Moses. That's a long time. Yeah. And then the law, finally, the Torah is given at Moses. But that, he says, sin is not counted where there is no law. He doesn't mean there were no sinners. What he means is there was no accusation against them. Adam's sin was against something God said, don't do. Don't eat the tree. So his sin has a direct law application. All of his descendants just do evil. But there's no don't do it. Before Cain kills Abel, God doesn't say, do not murder. Cain just goes and, and does evil. And so sin as an idea is not counted the same. And neither does God punish it in the same way. But rather, he endures it so that he can bring about the revelation which leads to Jesus. And again, that's the point Paul has been making and is continuing to make. Sin is not counted where there is no law. That is, you can't really even know sin until God points it out to you what it is. Yes? Even so, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That is, it wasn't against a specific law. Who was a type of the one who was to come? That's about Adam. So let's stick with the sinning. The sinning from Adam until Moses was not against a specific type of law. Nonetheless, they all died. Why? Well, because they're sinners. And so he's, he's reemphasizing this point of the law not being capable of saving you, of sin existing even apart from the law. Yeah, but that the law comes to, good Lutheran phrase, show us our sin. Yeah. Now then he says, Adam was a type of the one who is to come. That's this great exchange thing we've been talking about a little bit. So Adam is the first, Jesus is the second. They have similarities. They also have differences. Jesus is greater in many ways. That's what he means by that. And so he says then, because there's differences between Adam and Jesus, the free gift is not like the trespass. What does that mean? It does not undo what we've already said, that Adam died, all died, Jesus lives, all live. That's still true. But what he's going to point out now with these next examples is how Adam died, all died. That's kind of a thing. Jesus lives, all live. That's really a thing. So it's always going to be not like the trespass in that it's greater. The good news is greater than the bad news. That's what he means there. For explaining that or making that case, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Right? So even though everyone dies from Adam's sin, the grace of resurrection is more than that. It is greater than that. It is more valuable than that. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This is a difference in kind, not amount. Now we, we Americans, we all want to think in terms of amounts, that it would be greater, that means there's more. No, it's a difference in kind. Condemnation is bad. Justification is good. And so even though there is a type there where Jesus is like Adam, Adam's going down, Jesus is going up. And that is a much more good thing than even just no longer going down. You don't just stop going down, you come back up, even ascending to the highest heaven. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, that reigning in life there is kind of key. Life. There are multiple ways to say life in Greek. The one here is zoe. Say zoe with me. Zoe. Okay. You are probably more familiar with the word bios. Say bios. Bios, like in biology. Yeah? The study of life. There's also another way of referring to your life. I won't make you memorize or work on this Greek, but peripatao also is a way of talking about your life. That means, though, more like to walk. Okay, so you have, you have zoe, which is like your essence, the fact that you are alive. You have bios, which is more like your lifetime, 
The idea of of an existence. And then you have this peripatome, which is more like your behavior. It's what you do. We use the word life to refer to all of those things. What we want to emphasize here is that righteousness reigning in life here is zoe. It's reigning in essence. It's not reigning in what you do. It's not reigning in your experience. It's reigning in fact and in truth. It is simply reality that your faith in Jesus is resurrection. It is eternal life. You're not waiting for it. It's not coming later. You're waiting for your bias to catch up. But the rest of your actual life, it's here already in these words. Yes? Much more is this than the condemnation. Much more is this than the experience of sin and shame. Much more is this eternal and not temporal, like our own wickedness. Yes? Verse 18, we already looked at it. But therefore... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Same idea. Yeah, it should be really clear, I think, by this point. Verse 20. Now... The law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. New idea. New idea. I believe he's dropped this concept once in the book so far. But it's one of those places where Paul isn't really defending why he's saying it. He's spent a lot of time defending why he says stuff. This one, he just says it and you just have to believe it. Okay, so I'm going to read it again because it's, it's strange, right? The law... The Old Testament, circumcision, Mount Sinai, telling us that you shall not murder, came to increase the trespass. That's not how we think. I mean, have you noticed the violence in our cities? Rockford is doing just, just the same as everywhere else. Multiple shootings in the last couple of weeks, but they're not alone. Even though Buffalo made the news... There were 10 people shot and I believe killed last, last night, two nights ago in, in South Chicago. One gunner. You notice that? It's all over the place. We're a lawless society. People are doing what they want and what they want is evil. But I also, if you listen, you'll find out there are many, many elites who will jump up and say, I know the answer. We need a new law. If we just make guns more illegal, then it will fix this. Now, they're not... Not normal in that. I remember, uh, I think this was in when we lived in North Dakota. One of my kids came home from school. We weren't homeschoolers at that point. We were sending them to the local school. And they had an assignment that they were each supposed to, I think it was like third grade. They're each supposed to come up with a law in order to make the town better. And we were sitting around the the dinner table talking about it. And I, I asked my child, you know, okay, so... What's your law? And she came up with the law. And I said, all right, so how are you going to make it happen? So it's a law. Well, I know that. But what happens when someone breaks it? Oh, I don't know. I guess we'll have to have the policeman do something. Okay, so what is he going to do about the other things that are happening while he's taking care of this thing? Well, I don't know. I guess we'll need more policemen. Oh, so you'll need more laws. Huh. 
And it, I don't know if it did, the conversation got it through or not, but, but the idea I hope is getting through here. What law brings is more law. It doesn't necessarily bring more obedience to the law. And as Christians, we should know, in fact, it does the opposite. The more laws you create, the more lawless the people will become. Now, some idiot's going to say, Fisk said the law is bad and we don't need the laws. No, the law is good and we do need the law. We just don't need lots of laws made up by men. We have enough in the law that has been given by God, even though it's just going to make us worse. What's going to make us good is forgiveness of sins. Okay, now, I'm not saying that we should rule society through the gospel, although maybe we should try from time to time. But what I am saying is we should understand that laws don't make bad people good people. Laws make bad people look for ways around the law. And that God, knowing this, gave us the Old Testament law in order to show us that's what we do. That we look for the loophole. We look for the out. We decide it doesn't apply to me. The law increases the trespass. You would not even know what it is to be greedy and covetousness if God didn't say that deserves going to hell. You wanting all that stuff. Now it's like, oh. And now, in fact, it's harder to not be greedy and covetous. Huh? That's the point. Law came to increase the trespass. Now, but that's not really the point. That's just the foundation. The law came to increase the trespass, but, you see that but there? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the law being revealed in order to awaken you to your knowledge of your own sin is not just so you would know about your own sin and try harder, it's so you would know you stand in grace all the more. That neither height nor depth, angel nor demon can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Or as chapter 8, verse 1 will say, one of the best verses in the Bible. There is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ. Grace reigns all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, that's Jesus, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Next week with chapter 6, he's going to continue on this same idea. I said a moment ago, someone's going to say, I said, do whatever you want. I said, the law isn't needed. And he's way ahead of them. That's what he's going to get into in the next verses. Someone's going to say, well, if, if grace is so great, why don't we just sin a bunch so there's more grace? And he's effectively going to say, you're an idiot. You're, you're not listening. You're not listening. Um, but it is, it is worth kind of touching on here just for a moment. What does truly being alive in Jesus look like? It doesn't look evil. So if after everything I just said, and I'm talking to the online people as much as anybody, you think I said it's okay to be evil, you weren't listening. Grace does not look evil. Grace looks more good than even do it. And also, then, grace does not look legalistic. That it is, it doesn't need to add law upon law upon law to keep you to keep the first law. We were talking after the service last night, a couple of the guys that come for the men's stuff, uh, about the hair length of Jesus. Did Jesus have long hair or not? It's, it's an interesting debate. I'm on the record as saying no. No, I think all those pictures are completely just goofy, made up, and wrong. 
And I actually think it's connected to the feminization of Jesus in the Western church that began around the 12th century. We can leave that for another time. But why do I make this case? Well, because there's laws in the Old Testament about the hair length of Jews. And if you're going to grow your hair long, you also aren't allowed to drink wine. Because you are then a Nazarite. Do you remember this? A special vow you can do, you become a Nazarite. John the Baptist probably had long hair. Samson, ah, he can't drink wine. He has to grow his hair long. He's a Nazarite. Jesus is not a Nazarite. How can I say that? Uh, he drank wine. So if he had long hair, it wouldn't have been like Nazaretic hair. However, maybe, maybe, he had long hair like the more Orthodox or Hasidic Jews that you see these days where the, the top of their head is cut and then the side is not cut and they have these little curls that run down the side of their head. Do you know why that's there? Now, I can't say this is the way Jesus would look. Don't, don't assume this here. But the reason that's there is the reason I'm telling the story. That's there because there's an Old Testament law about not cutting the hair on the side of your head. Which is about... Men needing to have beards. This is the side of my head. I can cut this hair. In fact, I have to, but I need this hair to grow. And there's all sorts in the Old Testament about how the beard is a symbol of honor and masculinity and a bunch of things like that. But, so now you got Judaism being Judaism. God says, don't walk 10 paces. We won't walk 15, just to be sure. So God says, you got to grow a beard. Well, I'm going to grow the beard up to the point where it's not a beard anymore and it becomes long hair. Now, that's legalistic, okay? Where you have something that says don't do this and you're gonna make up all these other rules to make sure you don't do it, but you actually missed the entire point. You missed the whole point. And again, the point of the beers, beers is a symbol of masculinity. It is, that's why they're back these days, by the way. You got a lot of guys that feel like they're not allowed to be guys and so they're gonna grow their face. Okay, fine, I'll be a guy anyway. That's just the way it is, right? In terms of uh, Jesus and his hair length, again, that's, that's a side point to the truth that our life together under grace doesn't look evil and doesn't look legalistic. That is, when we love the law, we love the actual law. Um, I'll go ahead and actually say this here. I, I want to I bring this out. This is worth talking about as a congregation. This is not a Lutheran thing to do, what I'm about to do. How do we, as a community... Police our modesty. How do we train ourselves in order to not look like the loose people that we live among and around? Hmm? Once upon a time, you can probably remember some of you, you'd go to a dance. And they got the ruler. You ever heard that? They put the ruler between, oh, a foot apart, foot apart. Or maybe they got the ruler on your skirt length. Oh, oh right there, right there. Now, let me tell you, the law came to increase the trespass. What happened to that generation? Mm, 60s. Yeah. So that's legalism. And the reason I'm bringing this up is to say that we need to care about being modest and we need to not be legalists. Now, what does that mean? It means grace must abound all the more. It means that what you believe matters more than what you do, but what you believe will begin to impact what you do. It means that if you're going to be concerned about the log in someone else, or excuse me, the splinter in someone else's eye, you better be aware about the log in your own first. Yeah? And what it means, why am I saying this here? What do I want us to be, St. Paul? I want us to be a place of patience. 
I want us to be a place of understanding. I want us to be a place of grace. Because that's how we stand. That's how we stand. Yeah. One more point before we break here and go. And that is, I mentioned the power of Christianity. And I want to now talk about the evidence of Christianity in you. Now, as I say this, I don't want you to look to this evidence as the source of your faith. That's a mistake. But you can see it. You can see that Christianity is working in you. Don't take that as your proof. Your proof is you're baptized. Your proof is take and eat. This is Jesus. Your proof is he is risen. But this will do things to you. There's three of them I want to tell you about. It's going to make you feel affliction. And that affliction will be an awareness of your sin. One of the strangest things of pastors when people come to me and they say, Pastor, I really struggle with my sin. I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. Like, <laughs> Do you know pagans don't struggle with their sin? So, again, affliction and struggle with your knowledge of sin, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Battle it with the hope, but don't, don't try to make it go away. Rejoice that you've been counted worthy to see your own need. Two, you have hope nowhere else but Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you never have worldly hope. Don't get me wrong. But if I were to come to you and I were to say to you, like, on the last day, how are you going to get in? You know, if I had to tell you to put your own works up against the scale of goodness, how are you going to get in? You as a Christian are going to be able to say, I only got Jesus. And that, that is indeed inside of you. That, that's not like a lie. That's not pretending. You actually can feel, I, I honestly have no other hope. I just don't. Now, does my hope rest in the fact that I have no other hope? No, my hope rests in Jesus. But I can see the evidence of Jesus working on me. I have no other hope. And finally then, this is one you can work on more. You can take pride in not being your own. Now, we do this when we talk about baptism, but I want you to put the two ideas together. I want you to be proud of your baptism. I want you to stand with your chest up and be like, I am a son of God. Not because of what I've done. He said so. And I get to be proud of that. Yeah? So again, the evidence of Christianity is indeed an awareness of your sin, your distance from God, an ability to confess it, leading to the knowledge and the statement, I got no hope at all but Jesus, but since I have hope in Jesus, I am indeed alive. And proudly so, not in myself, but in my King, in my God. Now, both of those ideas are going to come back a bit next week. I'm in chapter six, yeah, and our baptism into Christ. Uh, for now, I guess that's a, I don't have a smooth ending to the sermon. We'll just end in the name of Jesus.